HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, this is the Heritage Radio Network. For those of you who are just, uh, well, what a ridiculous thing to say. You wouldn't have picked this podcast if you didn't know what it was. So never mind any of that. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the beef cattle markets. Um, We are speaking today with Ben Gottschall, who is the Policy and Research Director for the Organization for Competitive Markets. And he brings with him a lifetime of agricultural experience, as well as a background in organizing research and writing. I'm going to read Ben's whole bio only because I loved it so much and because it represented so many different interests. Um, Ben uh, was born and raised on a cattle ranch in the sandhills of southwest Holt County, Nebraska, and is a fifth generation rancher who spent many hours as a child guessing cattle weights at the Atkinson Livestock Market, where his grandpa Dean was the order buyer. I want you to know, Ben, that I too have successfully guessed cattle weights and I did not grow up on a ranch, but never mind. Um, Although most of his occupations uh, have been agricultural, he has also published a full-length book of poetry and taught college English. Ben previously worked as the Energy and Agriculture Director for Bold Nebraska. He has been a past county and district president of the Nebraska Farmers Union, where he now serves on the board of directors. He lives near Raymond, Nebraska, with his wife, Tammy, and their daughter, Charlotte. And together, they own the Davy Road Ranch and operate Holt Creek Jerseys, a dairy cattle and genetics business. Ben is a founding owner of Lone Tree Foods, a local food wholesale and distribution company serving the Lincoln and Omaha uh, areas. That's a fantastic bio. Like you just have had your fingers in so many different pies and you are, even though you're a fifth generation cattle rancher, you are anything but typical in my experience. Do you, would you consider yourself a typical rancher with the poetry and the college professor and the. Um, no, I wouldn't consider ben? myself typical, but, uh, <laughs> But we all we all have you know the same job, which is producing food for people. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. So, you are the acting interim director uh, for the OCM, right? They're they're yeah. actually searching for somebody to take the executive produ- uh, director position. Uh, I won't ask you why you don't want to be the executive director. I can imagine it's just a, a number of huge headaches. So, um, but I have spoken in the past. I've had many people on from from the OCM actually, especially Mike Weaver. And as you know, Mike Calicrate has been a guest many times for my show. 
Yes. Both of them, fountains of wisdom, really terrific. But let's start with your, you had a recent press release that calls for a moratorium on foreign meat imports, which I think is a really interesting and important topic for the American consumer to be aware of. So tell us a little bit about that press release and what, what, what is the, you know, what's the beef jerky? <laughs> Sorry, I make bad okay. jokes all the way through this. You'll get used to it. Okay, well, um, I got to confess, part of it was just kind of reactionary and opportunistic because um, that same week, <laughs> President Trump, that same week, President Trump, you know, mentioned it in a press event at the White House. Um, and, you know, he basically said something in public that, that we agree with policy wise. And so we, uh, we wanted to let him and Sonny Perdue know that we, we agreed with that, that statement, that, that strategy of stopping imports. And then, you know, basically, uh, kind of calling attention to why, and in particularly, you know, that release mentioned Brazilian imports. Um, you know, we've, we've long kind of had a, had a tough situation there with JBS and the Batista brothers. Um, you know, they, yes. they, <laughs> they were, got, they got caught doing many things, which I don't need to go all into those things, but we, you know, the, the safety of Brazilian meat from JBS has been called into question in the past. So there's yes, it that, there's the food safety issue, but also, you know, in the absence of country of origin labeling, which, you know, was repealed about five years ago, um, we mm -hmm. just have a way to differentiate uh, imported beef from beef raised in the United States, and it's allowed to be labeled as a product of the USA. So you've got importation happening, which on its face isn't a bad thing, but when you allow those imports to compete on the shelf as if they were American products. Uh, we feel that's fraudulent labeling. And it also allows uh, these companies to import cheap trim, uh, which is then put into mm -hmm. the ground beef that, that is then kind of, I, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say adulterated, although it has happened in the past where there were recalls, but it just kind of cheapens the product and then allows those products to compete, we think, unfairly with, you know, uh, the, the domestic product that that is not commingled uh, with imported trim from who knows where. And so we're talking primarily about trim, right? We're talking trim. We're not talking whole muscle cuts, right? Well, we use this, a lot of trim in this country. Sure. In this case, we would be talking about whole muscle cuts. Um, oh, right. for, for the reason I mentioned before, because of the, the labeling issue. Huh. So you could, so, so in other words, you're saying that the, because, okay, so say JBS slaughters a, a beef cow in uh, Brazil and then cuts it into, you know, quarters, right. And then ships those quarters to the United States where it is further processed into whole muscle cuts. Then it can be, then it can be labeled as a product of the USA. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's correct. So obviously they're going to get a much, uh, and so the price differential between what they're buying from Brazil and what they would be paying an American beef producer is significant. Can you give us an estimate of how, what the differential is in price between, say, buying a steak that originates from Brazil uh, compared to a steak that originates from your ranch? Um, I'm not sure about the exact pricing, but the real issue, at least from an antitrust, you know, anti-competition perspective, is they own that beef. So when JBS imports beef that they own, that that's kind of already gone through their system in Brazil, they own that beef, and that and they are using that supply to to manipulate price via demand. So you know when gotcha. when why would they can basically take what they have invested in that product and use that to leverage the price that they are paying for beef in the United States. And so I see, you know, they're, they're in a way they're pitting the Brazilian rancher who we believe they're also exploiting um, against the American rancher. And that's just yes. unfair competition. They, we don't have the same, we don't have the same standards. We don't have all the same uh, economic situations in, in both countries and it's, mm -hmm. it's just, a, it's just a really, um, really tricky game that they play there.
Mm-hmm. Most definitely. So most of most of your your organization supports the idea that the American uh, government should place a moratorium on imports from other countries. I would assume that Australia is included in this, right? Because their cattle is also significantly cheaper than American made uh, American produced beef, right? Yes. And, you know, in like, again, like I said before, in absence of country of origin labeling, we don't really have any other mm-hmm. choice. You know, it, we're not opposed to competition. You know, we're the organization for competitive markets, but we feel that right. labeling, right. labeling, you know, the, the Australian beef or, or beef from Uruguay or now Namibia is legally importing beef to the U.S. Um, is, like I said, it's for, we believe it's fraudulent labeling and that's not fair competition. Mm-hmm. We believe and consumers mm-hmm. do want the right to choose what they are, what they're purchasing to know where it comes from and to make a choice based on, you know, what they want to support. And so the demand, sure. you know, the demand for American raised beef is, is there. Um, it, country of origin labeling doesn't really create demand. The demand already exists. Country of origin labeling just aligns the demand, the consumers demanding a product with the product that they actually want. Right. So would you say that most cattle producers agree with your position or is it primarily independents like the guys who participate in the OCM or uh, the other organization uh, called RCAF that Bill Bullard runs? Is it mostly sort of guys like you who I think of as more independent or is this a position that is also being supported by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association? Uh, I, I do not believe the NCBA supports that position. Um, but yes, you're right. I, I'd say most independent cattle producers uh, would agree. Um, and, you know, you mentioned RCAF. They did uh, circulate a petition about country of origin labeling. Uh, I think they got, last time I saw, they were getting close to or maybe even went over 300,000 signatures on that. Um, sure. And so, you know, a, a, a big portion of that is is producers, but then, you know, consumers, like I said, consumers are weighing in on this too now. Um, and you're right. seeing kind of, you're seeing kind of, uh, an awareness, uh, especially, you know, since the COVID-19 pandemic and its effects have been made evident. Um, you know, a lot of consumers are starting to pay attention to these things where, you know, just six months ago, maybe not as many of them were, were quite tuned into some of these issues. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one reason why I'm picking this up. I've actually done quite a bit of programming around country of origin labeling, which I fully support. Um, So, uh, you know, when it was repealed, I I was really, um, I was dismayed. And also I I felt as you did and many of your uh, brethren do that it's extremely unfair. Um, But what, what, so what role does the national, let's, let's go back for a second and talk about the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, because um, they have not been supporters of uh, country of origin labeling or even, you know, produced in the USA type labeling. Um, and they, yet at the same time, they are absorbing uh, checkoff dollars from every pound of, ca- of beef that is sold in the United States. Why is there a disconnect between what the National Cattlemen's Beef Association supports and what uh, the, you know, the average American rancher supports? Well, um, the short answer is because the meat packers are part of the NCBA now, um, and mm. they grow their weight around, and you know they have a lot of control and influence, and not just not just in that organization, but in others, and you know it, it's it's kind of a classic case of of in a way agency capture. Uh, we see, we see, you know, it's not regulatory in this case, but we see other agencies like the USDA um, having quite a revolving door and quite a bit of what we would what we would call conflict of interest, um, where you know the majority, I think, of NCBA's members are are cattle producers. Um, the question is, does that entity fully represent the best interests of all of its members? And we would argue. Well, that saying, yeah. 
I, I would argue that too. Um, you, uh, the, but the, so you're saying the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is primarily made up of cattle producers, and yet uh, you're also saying that all four of the major beef packers, um, which would be uh, Cargill, JBS, um, Tyson, and who's the fourth one? National? Is that still yeah. national? Um, so you're saying that they throw their weight around within the NCBA. So most of the, what most of the legislative, uh, impact that the cattle markets can have on their local, uh, on their elected representatives would be coming from the NCBA, not organizations like the OCM or or RCAF. Is that right also? Well, yes, they do have tremendous influence in, in Washington and with lawmakers, um, and mm-hmm. you know, that's that's part of that's part of what we're we're trying to to find out. Um, you know what part what portion of the NCBA's budget is spent on lobbying, um, mm-hmm. and you know uh, back in 2010, um, an audit of just nine days of the beef checkoff program found that there was more than $200,000 in um, imp- improper spending, including lobbying. Um, and so, you know, when, but when but, mm-hmm. then a full audit was performed, but it was never released to the public because the USDA basically didn't want to embarrass itself. And we're still right. fighting right. the USDA to turn over that information through wow. a FOIA wow. request in 2014 and, you know, we, we have a, a lawsuit that's pending in that matter. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, what happened uh, with the beef processing as well as pork production, uh, and I think to some extent poultry, is is that with only uh, the option of relatively few slaughterhouses, correct me if I'm wrong at any time, uh, Ben, I just want to make sure people understand that what happened here was we started importing more beef because we had bottlenecks in our own production lines because of uh, the pandemic, which shut down or diminished the capacity for production in a variety of these beef plants. Is that correct? Am I right about that? Um, I don't. Imports didn't necessarily dramatically increase at that time. But, you know, what did was Mm -hmm. exports. You know, it, you uh-huh. know, uh, right. Yeah. Back in uh, um, in April, you know, Smithfield and Tyson were warning us of shortages. Uh, and, yes. then in, and then in April, they exported a record amount of pork to China. So, right. You know, I, it, I didn't want to get into the pork thing, but yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it. There was there was meat in cold storage. There was beef in cold storage. We were importing yeah. beef. Yes. Uh, but but the the shortages, you know, were mostly due to the the supply chain, you know, and and the 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 supply was for the most part there for mm-hmm. for for the restaurant and the schools, but those the, you know the demand for that just went away, and so you saw what you saw with almost all other sectors of the food food supply, where you had the system kind of geared toward um, producing. Uh, these products for a certain market and they, and it wasn't set up to produce them for the, the, the high demand we saw to, for, you know, individuals via grocery stores. So, right. Or so it wasn't for the consumer. Right. Right. Yeah. We saw a processing bottleneck, not only in the big major, you know, big four meat packing plants, but also in every little small town uh, locker and butcher plant all across the country. Because the loss of the institutional buyer, so they could no longer, they couldn't, uh, they could not uh, be, they were not nimble enough to be able to switch their processing needs or processing to a consumer market and grocery stores as opposed to sending it into uh, larger institutions. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Sure. Or uh, yes. Or in the case of the smaller plants, they were just overwhelmed with uh, ranchers that had that had animals that needed to be that, you know, were ready for slaughter, ready for butchering. And you have, and then you have the customers who were looking to find beef because they, they weren't finding it on in the grocery store. Right. Right. So um, let's uh, let's talk for a second again about the country of origin labeling, because that was abandoned. And and, and I, I just want people to understand this because this really is kind of a crux issue in my mind. 
just to go back to that, the the um, so when the when the country of origin labeling was abandoned or repealed, that was largely according to the government. That was because the World Trade Organization uh, ruled in favor of Canada and Mexico, and against mm-hmm. um, you know cattle ranchers. Um, because they they were going to Canada and Mexico were saying, well, people will never buy our beef if it's labeled Canadian or Mexican. So that was considered unfair competition. So how how will how 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 does labeling it product of USA differ from country of origin labeling? Explain how that's going to work. Like if you guys manage to get that rammed through, how will that not be the same problem? Well. It might. I mean, it would be the same problem. And and the, yeah, the fact of I the thought. matter is, is there's a, there's a big question about the standing and and whether or not Canada and Mexico should be allowed to sue us for that. Um, there's even been some in the industry question whether or not the U.S. should even be in the WTO. You know, there's actually a push for that right now. You've got uh, Josh Hawley in Missouri, you know, pushing for the U.S. to withdraw from the WTO. And so, um, you know, that's that issue uh, is kind of one of those things that kind of points to um, one of the <laughs> one of the trade offs t- to to being part of the World Trade Organization is that you open yourself up for um, these types of, of of lawsuits and actions that are basically meant to to um, to not force our hand, but establish a position that that basically demands we react in a certain way uh, when it comes to our, you know, how we use our imports. So it's it's a tricky thing because you know some people That's say very tricky. Well, some people say, well, let go ahead and let them sue us, and and what what are they going to do? You know, <laughs> so there's some that that kind of have this hard line stance of. Well, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to do what Canada and Mexico want us to do. But then others, you know, they're, they're our closest, obviously, North American trading partners. And so it basically, uh, we weren't willing to challenge them. I'll just put it that way. We weren't willing to, to take them on, so to speak, in that legal kind of arena uh, that, they, that, they, that they took it to. And so, uh-huh. you know, I don't know what would have happened had we done that. Um, there may have been some sort of legal process that, that determined a finding uh, and we might have lost. But at least we would know <laughs> now. Right now, we're wondering why, why some of us are wondering why we didn't just, you know, put the earplugs in and keep going. Um, so. So where we are today. I've heard other people. Yeah. So where we are Sorry. today, you know, five years later, after not having country of origin labeling, are we any better off, you know, look from a trade perspective, from a from a meat, beef industry perspective? And I think most ranchers would say no. So so there's that. Yeah. But, but go ahead. I. You were about to well, what I was going to suggest or say was that um uh, the fines that were being proposed were fairly significant, but uh, but other people who you know discussed this issue with me at the time also said the fines compared to the overall profit margins of the beef industry are minimal, and we should have just gone ahead and paid the damn fines and continued with country of origin labeling. So it seemed to me that the country of origin labeling issue was, or the the withdrawal from that was largely driven by the packers. Would you agree with that? I would because they, yes. of course, want to import cheap beef to mix with trim or whatever, um, and then sell it. And that also, obviously, has a, as you said at the top of the program, has a tremendous impact on the prices that you get. So let me, before we take a quick break for for a sponsor drop, I just want to understand why. I want you to explain to me why uh, beef prices are so freaking high right now. Like, I mean, unbelievable. Like, I've never seen them this high. Um, and yet you guys don't seem to be getting that piece of the pie. So what, 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 what's happening there in the, in the price market? 
Well, you you know, you've got the whole the price of wholesale beef and you got the price of retail beef. And so when customers see the price of retail beef on the shelf, they immediately, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of follow the chain back. They think, "Oh, the, you know, the grocery stores are gouging us." Or and then they and then they go yeah. from there and they, "Oh, well these the farmers must be gouging us." They don't they don't often think about that there's that that real big gap in the middle. Um, and for lack of a better term, I just call it good old fashioned grift and greed. Um, you know, it, 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 thank you. you know, when you, if you don't, you know, I think, I think the big meat packers saw the writing on the wall and thought, well, if we got to close down plants, we're going to have mm-hmm. to, we've got to, we've got to make a profit for our shareholders. We're going to have that money's going to have to come from somewhere. So if it's not going to come from, yes. from our usual volume, it's going to have to come from a higher price. And that's when that happened, when there was, when, when those prices continued to climb, uh, you know, through the month of April and May, that's when the attention started to focus on the pricing of beef. And that's when you saw kind of the pile on with, you know, senators and other folks calling for investigations of, you know, price fixing in the meatpacking industry, which had been going on right, right. since, since the, the, the Holcomb, the the plant fi- the Tyson plant fire in Holton, Kansas. Right, that's right. Okay, we're, I'm going to stop you there. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop, uh, and uh, we'll be right back with Ben Gottschall from the Organization for Competitive Markets. Stay tuned. We're going to talk more about uh, deconstructing the cattle market and trying to figure out how to make this work better for everyone. Uh, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. And we are back with Ben Gottschall. We're talking about uh, price fixing now. Um, Part of the um, interesting uh, developments that are ongoing in the meat industry uh, across the board. Um, I... uh, I don't think that the price fixing is anything new. It just seems to be higher. They seem to have, you know, ratcheted it up to a higher price point than they have in the past. So would you assume that that's why it suddenly is drawing scrutiny from senators or is it just kind of, uh, I mean, I don't think there's any been any come to Jesus moment with senators who get huge amounts of money from, uh, you know, packing companies, their campaigns. I, I, I'm wondering what really is going on here, that they're suddenly paying attention to that and also the consolidation in the market. I mean, that these, these are all things that have been going on now for decades. Um, so what do you think has really brought this to a head? Well, I think it's just gotten bad enough. I mean, uh-huh. it's been consolidation right. has been on an upward trajectory, you know, for the last 40 years. And I yeah. think it's just finally gotten bad enough where, you know, you, we, we saw shortages um, and we saw the fragility of such a huge, hugely consolidated system, you know, uh, where just the closure of one or two or three major plants can totally disrupt the whole food supply chain. Um, and right. I think, you know, it, it, it went from something that that policy folks like me were, talk, were talking about, um, you know, cattle producers and, and producer groups were talking about to something that consumers could see and feel uh, ah. and something. And, and that includes, that includes all of us. So it kind of, right. Uh, right. it kind of democratized the impact, I guess you might say um, where it wasn't uh-huh. just, 
it wasn't just the, the, the farmers and ranchers who are a minority of the population. And it wasn't just, right. um, you know, the people in the know. It, it Folks got a real quick education when they went to their grocery store and there was no meat on the shelf. And then when there right. was, it was right. a lot more expensive than before. That gets people's attention. And, and, oh, yeah. and then they start calling, uh, calling their, their, their local leaders, their state senators, their, you know, their, their congressmen and, and want to know what's going on. So, uh-huh. you know, I, I think I, th- I don't want to say it's a good thing, but I, I think that uh, it's an opportunity to try to figure these things out. And so the, the increased scrutiny, the increased attention to these issues is welcome. And my hope is that we can actually get some kind of substantive change and some type of reform uh, to, to move forward and not allow it to continue and not ever allow it to get to this point again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'd think that the uh, that the various, like the Sherman Act, and there's another big act that was enacted in the early part of the 20th century would have like protected you a little bit more than it has. But it, it does, it, as you said, it's been going on for about four decades, really since the beginning of what we think of as the neoliberal globalization, right? I mean, I'm new to all of this, you know, relatively. Um, But that's sort of my understanding is that it started really with sort of the Reagan-Thatcher era where we suddenly began, you know, driving uh, prices down by going to other countries to get cheaper and cheaper, cheaper labor, cheaper product, et cetera. Um, Do you feel like the United States, you know, to go back to sort of our whether or not we withdraw from the World Trade Organization, which I think is a really interesting question and something worth an entire program, but... Would you say that um, aside from importing cheap beef to the, at the expense of American farmers, would you say that the American, uh, that the USDA and, uh, you know, et al. are doing a good job of negotiating good trade deals vis-a-vis our livestock agricultural products? Uh, or are we getting hosed somehow? Um, well, I, 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 I'm very unclear about that. When it, when it comes to how USDA represents livestock producers, you don't have to look any further than how, in particular, this, this USDA, although it's not definitely not the first administration um, to, to kind of kick the can down the road, but just look at their treatment of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Look at their yeah. treatment of the grain and Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration. Um, you know, Donald Trump and Sonny Perdue basically just gutted Gypsa. It they they shelved it. There's no director. There's no deputy director. There is no Gypsa anymore. And that was the administration solely in, responsible with enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. And so they moved okay. it into yeah. the into the AMS. You know, the Agriculture Marketing Service. They moved it into the AMS, and then they released their rulemaking process and, and and totally dismantled any semblance of producer protection in that rulemaking process. I mean, they basically, in so many words, said, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna revisit past cases. They've already, there's already been a precedent set that." that producers, farmers and ranchers don't have legal standing to, to prove competitive harm. <laughs> and, right. and, and we're just going to say that if it's, if a practice is customary in the industry, then it must be okay because it must be good for business. And so basically in so many words, they said, <laughs> we're going to codify uh, the meatpacker abuses of farmers and ranchers. We're going to basically make it legal for them to do that. And then we're going to, kick the last leg out from under any legal standing that these farmers and ranchers ever had and make them require them to prove competitive harm to the whole industry, not just to themselves. So if I make a complaint as a farmer uh, about non-competitive practices or some abuse that I feel I've suffered, I have to prove that that has happened and that that has affected every sector of the industry, that it affects all farmers and ranchers. And that's impossible. Right. It's 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 of an course. impossible uh, burden of proof, and so right. that's right. what the USDA has done. 
they have completely eliminated producer protections. So if that if that tells you anything, what they're doing in in our country representing our interests, I I I don't I don't understand how they could possibly be representing our best interests in trade agreements that that we're not even that we're not even a party to. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite a st- that I did not know. Now, so let's let's just re- de- de- unpack that for a second. So you're saying the Trump administration came in and was voted in largely by the agricultural community. I mean, that was a big because he promised uh, that he was going to take care of farmers, and I'm assuming that he meant livestock farmers as well. Uh, and instead, he dismantled Gypsa, which had been. Obama and Vilsack had been trying to uh, change those rules. Am I right? I mean, we're going back 10 years now, which is when I first started learning about GYPSA and, and, you know, the Packers and Stockyards Act and the whole grain inspection, blah, blah, blah. So they were trying to modernize that and create more protections for producers. And yet when Trump came in, farmers and ranchers voted for him because he – did he promise he was going to continue those reforms or did he announce that he was going to do away with them? And people applauded that. I, you know, I just don't understand how he pulled the wool over everybody's eyes in the agricultural community, I guess is what I'm saying here. What happened there? Well, you know, the mantra for, for the, um, for the rate, you know, you mentioned the Reagan, Reagan era antitrust non-enforcement, I would call it was efficiency. Efficiency, efficiency, right. efficiency. So, you know, to the public or, or to, you know, to folks who maybe aren't quite as deep into this as, as the folks that were trying to get these reforms passed, oh, it, you know, cutting out an agency, um, reducing that spending, so to speak, and, and making the whole, you know, the whole administration more efficient, that, that might sound good. But really, it, it was just getting rid of checks and balances. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, AMS, Agriculture Marketing Service, basically works hand in hand with the meat packers. And GYPSA was the mm-hmm. only check and balance to that power. And so That's right. by getting rid of GYPSA or putting it in a storage unit somewhere, um, you know, that that just basically eliminated any power that the, that the, that the producers had would have had to, to, to get, to seek relief, uh, for, for the practices that have been snowballing, you know, for, for the last 40 years. Right. And yeah, it's, it's, it's maddening to know that, you know, yes, a, a bulk of president Trump supporters came from folks in the farming and ranching community. Um, but you know, and, and it remains to be seen what the full effect of some of these policies will be. Do you think but, farmers and ranchers will continue to support the Trump administration and vote for him again? This is completely, this is just, you know, that's just me, just me asking <laughs> <laughs> from a completely partisan standpoint, mind you, because <laughs> of course I hate him deeply, but anyway, yeah. It's so hard to what say. do you think? Um, Are you, do you think your I, cohort will continue to support Sonny Perdue as U.S. Ag Secretary and, and Donald Trump as president? In the face of these, you know, abuses, basically. Yeah. From what I've seen in my conversations and and interactions, um, I would say farmers and ranchers are are less thrilled with Sonny Perdue than they are with Trump. Because, you know, Sonny Perdue is the kind of the face of the USDA. And so everything comes down Mm -hmm. from the USDA, even though he was, you know, hired by the president. Um. Yeah, there's there's kind of been an outcry um, for for Sonny Purdue to kind of get with the program and and start listening uh, to to the concerns of farmers and ranchers. And you know he has, you know he called for the investigation um, of the meatpacking companies. He you know okay. he he did re, he did respond to my to our letter uh, that that we sent calling on a moratorium on imports. He said that that agricultural trade is very important to our economy. And if I was struggling to apply for the CFAP program. Um, uh-huh. So, so that was, uh, I mean, kind of a non-answer to, to a, a pretty serious issue. 
Um, and Most yeah, I would say I would say the whole the whole agency, the whole USDA, is kind of has kind of been upended by this administration. You know, there's there been funding cuts. There've been kind of uh, location. You know, there, there's the that sure moving the move. ERS. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you know, it's just kind of this whole shakeup in general, not just as it as it pertains to antitrust or 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 livestock, but it's just kind of an agency wide shakeup, for lack of a better term. Right. Fascinating. We don't have too much more time. At least I don't want to. I don't want to keep you too much longer because I really appreciate this. But but one of the things that. Um, you know, and you can you can say I don't want to answer this question, but but I was wondering, like, what what about uh, large inst- speaking uh, to the the concept of a moratorium uh, on imports of beef and uh, well, primarily beef. We export all our other uh, animal products. Um, but what about that? What if you had like large institutional buyers, and I mean really large, like the fast food chains, for example? What if they said we're not going to buy beef that isn't produced in the United States? Would that have an impact on the way uh, things shake out for you guys? Like, would you, you know, is that is that is that something that would help your market? Uh, is it something that you would consider lobbying for directly to an organization like McDonald's or, um, you know, one of the other big uh, fast food chains like Yum or, you know, all of the guys that are international in scope? Sure. Well, um, you know. They those buy those those companies are big buyers and they have a lot yeah. of marketplace. They have a lot of power and a lot of influence in the marketplace. So there's no question that if if one of the one of the fast food chains or, or quote unquote burger joints decided that they were going to take that stance and and use that as a and, and use that as a promotion, you know, because that's that would be why they would do it. Um, yeah, of course would I, I think it would have an influence but one one example that we that you can have that we can point to is Walmart um, you know uh-huh. nobody buys more beef than Walmart and they opted out of the vertically integrated system and decided to go ahead on their own and, and vertically integrate themselves and so even Walmart was kind of uh, tired of being in the in the same pool as the as the big four meat packers and they just struck out on their own so, you know, there's, there's always that, uh, there's always that, um, possibility too, that, that these big, these big companies, uh, like you mentioned McDonald's or, and there's others, they could just decide to, to, to totally kind of vertically integrate their own supply chain. Um, that's, that's not, that's not out of the question. That would not be good. <laughs> no, we don't think that would be good either. So, you know, it, it yeah. depends on how that would take form, you know, uh, it, it depends on how, what, what it would look like, should they choose to, to make that choice and make that change. But I think, I think from a public relations standpoint, I think it was, it would be something consumers would get behind. Um, and yeah, so that that's what I'm thinking. Be, yeah. That would probably be, be what the motivation would, would be there. So would you would say your organization or or RCAF, you know, Bill Bullard's outfit, um, would those would you guys ever lobby? Do you ever meet with uh, organizations like, you know, large corporations like McDonald's and say, hey, what about it? Like, take the vertical integration off the table. Don't become a Walmart. But, you know, you know, extend, uh, you know, American ranchers first dibs, say, let them compete uh, on the basis of price or whatever, uh, you know, standards or, you know, who knows whatever criteria they decide is, is appropriate. Um, but then, but then only buy from American independent ranchers. Like, would you, do you guys go after that kind of, uh, you know, goal for lack of a better word? I mean, it seems to me that's kind of like, you know, uh, exploiting the, the need for corporate social responsibility, which is sort of, you know, making bigger and bigger inroads into the corporate mentality. It seems to me that would be a very, um, you know, like fertile ground uh, for you guys to exploit in terms of trying to force the hand of the government uh, vis-a-vis importing uh, meat from elsewhere. I know that was a well, really long. It's, it's not a it's like not a strategy that we've explicitly employed in the past, um, but mm-hmm. it's 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 not it's not counter to our to our goals and counter to our mission. Um, 
it, it, but it is difficult to break through that, that kind of corporate wall um, because that's kind of what we've been fighting for so long um, is, is we've been fighting <laughs> to keep big corporations from having that kind of power um, to, to yeah. the point where one, one buyer or one customer, so to speak, could dictate so many, so many things down the ladder, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting concept. I, I would say all, all options are on the table, you know, all possibilities, mm -hmm. um, should be considered. Um, but something that I haven't mentioned yet, um, that, that I think is very important in all this is when, when I say producers, um, I, I'm including farm labor and meatpacking labor in that, in the definition of that term. So I'm not just talking about farmers and ranchers. There has to be the, the food supply system has to be equitable. It has to be fair for, for the people who are doing the work of meatpacking themselves. And so whether that's happening in the United States where we have some degree of control over the standards for those workers um, and, and we should continue to fight, we should continue to fight for, for, for making those standards better. <laughs> but yeah. you know, we have virtually no, we have virtually no control over what happens in the meatpacking plants in South America, for example, where, where JBS has been yeah. ordered to, to close plants due to worker welfare uh, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, Oh, you know, not just then either. I mean, the, no. the, the conditions in uh, foreign meatpacking, especially in South America, um, are, you know, are, that's another whole subject. I mean, it's just, it, they are basically slave labor, um, even more than they are in this country. And we could, we could do a whole show on the yeah. way people are treated in meatpacking plants in this country. We're not going to go there, but okay. We're I mean, I have to wrap this up because 45 minutes is about the, the <laughs> limit of people's attention span, unfortunately, but I have one more question for you, Ben, and then I'll let you go. So okay. if you were king of beef, if you were the king, what would be the steps that you would take to change the face of the industry as it exists today? Huge question, of course, but you know, like a couple of bullet points. <laughs> well, I would, uh, I would separate if I would separate, I would structurally separate the, the, the big meatpacking companies. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, separate slaughter from processing so that the slaughtering is not happening in the same uh, building as, as the processing split those really? enterprises apart. And I would make it, I would, I would not allow uh, companies that produce boxed beef, which they are selling to grocers and retailers to be further processed, would not allow those companies to also sell uh, retail, retail product because that's uh -huh. a conflict of interest. They are basically, yep. you know, they're controlling the price of both um, and they're competing with their own customers um, on that. And so structurally separating slaughter from processing uh, in, those, in those larger plants. And, and when, you, when you go to slaughter only in those big facilities, then you can disperse, then you can decentralize and make more smaller processing facilities in the, you know, in, in more areas and more smaller towns. Mm -hmm. and so, sure. And, and that would include increasing the number of plants, the small, smaller plants out in, out in the country. And so mm -hmm. basically just decentralizing all of it. Um, we've got right. to have a more distributed system where uh, more farmers and, and, and businesses can operate in more places um, to add more value to the product and produce a higher quality product that actually benefits the local economies where these, where these, where the cattle are produced, where the livestock are raised, where the eaters are. And, um, so it's, but we've got to, we've got to start from the top down and we've got to start from the ground up. And so somewhere yeah. in the middle, I think is, is the solution, um, to, to making a more equitable system. Okay, great. Listen, Ben, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Good conversation. Uh, promote your uh, organization shamelessly. Where can people find out more information? They can subscribe for a newsletter, for example, right? Yeah. Talk about um, that for a second. Sure. It's an organization, uh, 
So it's an organization for competitive markets. We're on Facebook. And then we also have a website at competitivemarkets.com. Um, we do put together, uh, so there's, there's all kinds of pages and links there. Um, you can, you can join, you can become a member, you can support us. Um, and then, yes, we do put out quite a bit of information. Uh, we put out a weekly newsletter. We put out a weekly kind of news roundup of the uh, prevalent stories from the week. And then we do put out a a bi-monthly newsletter, uh, that is kind of has more in-depth, um, longer, articles that we produce ourselves about the important issues mm-hmm. for, for our organization. Right. Right. And anyway, I highly recommend the website. I learn a lot from it. I am a subscriber myself. Um, so, which is, <laughs> which is why I have some sense of what's going on, but not, not obviously, as you could see, uh, not the, not the firmest grasp, but pretty close. Um, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you folks for listening. We're going to be talking dairy next week with a couple of local farmers here in the great state of little roadie. Um, so please do tune in for that. And, uh, Ben, thanks again for joining me today and let's stay in touch, uh, as this, you know, as these various issues move through uh, both the court system and the court of public opinion. Um, and we'll see what happens. Thanks a lot for uh, your time. And um, thanks to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week. That's it for now. So long. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.